verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Well, here at All Souls, we're in the process of working out our response to the recent House of Bishops proposals on the back of living in love and faith. Proposals which sadly go against the teaching of the Church of England. So, it really couldn't be timelier to have arrived at this teaching on marriage here in Ephesians. Rather than simply continuing our sermon series, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sketch out what marriage is. And for that, we need to take a step back and uh, take in the vast sweep of what the Bible has to say as a whole. A canvas that we're perhaps not used to viewing but one that is unfolded for us here in verses 31 and 32. Every Christian is called to walk with Jesus, living out the new life we have in him in one of two ways, either as unmarried or as married Most of us will live out some of this life as unmarried. Some of us will live out some of this life as married. Each of these two is a distinct holy calling. The idea of the holy isn't common currency today. Somehow we've come to regard the holy as life-taking or life-denying. But but that which is holy is rightly understood as life-giving. The holy person is the truly alive person. So these two distinct holy callings each presents to us a narrow path for our feet to tread. Each presents to us a challenging path for our feet to tread. Take sexual intimacy, for example. Herein lie a challenge. Whilst the married may be active sexually, the unmarried are to abstain sexually. Neither is somehow more alive than the other. These Two distinct callings are both authentic, life-giving ways of living. And for God's holy people, there is no third way. Now, as with any good thing, there's always the danger of even holy callings becoming God things. And that's just what we've seen 
in the course of church history. At times, the celibate unmarried life has been an idol. At other times, the consummate married life has been an idol. Which are we most in danger of idolizing today? It's hard to imagine, but there were times when unmarried Christians frowned upon the married, viewing them as somehow second rate. Today, sadly, the swing is often the other way. Indications that we might have started to make an idol of marriage are there when you tell yourself, if I get married, then my life will really get started. When you keep pestering others with that question, when are you getting married? When we over-celebrate an engagement, conveying a sense that the couple have now arrived in life. Neither being unmarried nor married is to be idolized. I'm saying this up front to underline the truth that both are distinct holy callings which are to be equally honored and upheld in the life of the church. Does our life together reflect this? It ought to. For while a good number of us in this church family are married, uh, the larger number are unmarried. We're not in the business of tilting things in favor of one or the other. Both really are distinct holy callings to be equally honored and upheld in the life of the church. What frees us from warping these goods into gods is the realization that whilst one isn't simply the precursor to the other, neither is either an end in itself. Why, you might ask, am I saying unmarried instead of simply single? Two reasons. First, to speak of someone as single suggests individual, independence, being alone even. Unsurprisingly, the Bible doesn't use such language. Here in Ephesians, we've been seeing how we are one body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Second, to speak of someone as unmarried serves to remind all that the path they are walking through life still ultimately relates to marriage, albeit an unexpected one. The way to avoid idolizing either our married or unmarried calling is to recognize that both point beyond themselves to a still greater reality. Let's call it capital M, marriage. Whichever of the two paths we are treading, although distinct on the ground, each is headed in the same direction with the same goal in view. 
the marriage between Christ and the church. Neither of our two callings make any sense if they are an end in themselves. But viewed in relation to the great marriage still to come, we can start to recognize them as the holy callings they truly are. With our specific focus being marriage itself, uh, look with me again at verses 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The first thing for us to recognize about marriage is that it isn't a human invention, but a divine revelation. That's what that word mystery is telling us there in verse 32. Our society increasingly likes to think of marriage as some empty shell for us to fill with the content of our choice, some vague term referring to a variety of relationships. We rather arbitrarily say, when two people love one another, let's call that a marriage. And built from the ground up, it is arbitrary. Why, say, restrict it to two people? Why not more? But marriage is no social construct. It is divine revelation. Far from being an empty shell, it comes with its content fully supplied. A precise term referring to a precise ordering of relationships. The second thing for us to recognize about marriage is that it is no minor theme in God's revelation to us. Have you noticed that in these two verses is encapsulated the entire sweep of the biblical narrative? Marriage is the, the climax of the first act of the Bible story, and marriage provides the climax of the final act of the Bible story. Verse 31 encourages us to glance back to the beginning of marriage, directly quoting Genesis 2. Verse 32 encourages us to glance ahead to the end of marriage, alluding to Revelation chapter 19. There, towards the very end of the Bible, we read of the wedding of the Lamb. Jesus having come, of his bride having made herself ready. We're given a glimpse of the great and final marriage which surpasses all the little marriages that have come before. It might be helpful to present it like this. The earthly marriage of Genesis 2 is to be viewed in the light of the heavenly marriage of Revelation 19. In earthly marriage, we experience a shadow of that trust, belonging, safety, 
and intimacy that is fully and finally to be found in their heavenly marriage to which they point in the love of Christ and our joy in him. I wonder. A multitude of themes thread their way through the Bible, but the next time someone asks you about this book, would you dare to tell them it's a romance? Furthermore, this particular theme works itself out in such a way that far more than simply viewing earthly marriage in the light of heavenly marriage is going on here. Uh, Given it is divine revelation, earthly marriage accurately images heavenly marriage. The two are tightly tethered together. The way in which a man unites himself to a wife pictures for us the way in which Christ unites himself to his church. So, one thing we don't have the freedom to do is play fast and loose with the contours and content of marriage as given. Uh, You may have heard news of uh, this painting of Jesus on a church wall in Spain. A few years ago, a local artist decided it needed a new lease of life. And after a few quick strokes of her brush, it looked like this. Thankfully, thankfully, it was later restored. My point is, even adding a minor wrinkle to the biblical understanding of earthly marriage leads to a major blemishing of the biblical understanding of heavenly marriage. In other words, it distorts the very gospel itself, and the results are ugly. Turn with me then, right back to the very beginning of the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. In verse 24, we read, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Here's what marriage is. We aren't simply being told something interesting about marriage. We're being equipped to recognize marriage when we see it. Let's unpack what's being said. That is why the reference is to what has taken place just before. Throughout Genesis 1, we see God creating heaven and earth. Day and night, sky and water, land and sea. There is no duplication of sameness. We see God making complementary pairs intended to work together. All equally good things. This 
pairing of difference is seen in humanity created as male and female. Far from gender being some later development of social evolution, we have been engendered beings from the very beginning. God himself considering this very good. The narrative reaches a climax as Genesis 2 verse 23, Adam bursts into song. At first sight of the woman who now not only compliments but completes him. So, at the most fundamental level, marriage isn't the uniting of the same. It is by nature the pairing of difference. One man plus one woman. All pointing to the greatest of all possible pairing of difference. Christ and the church. What we have here in marriage is no less than an afterglow of Eden and a first glimpse of the new creation. Verse 24 That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. This uniting is an all-inclusive claim. And within its scope sits sexual intimacy between husband and wife. The idea underlying this uniting is one of being soldered together in the way we would solder two pieces of metal such that they become one. It probably doesn't come readily to us to think of sexual intercourse working in this way. But beginning to grasp the soldering that is taking place helps us to recognize two things. We can't enter a sexual relationship lightly and... We can't exit a sexual relationship lightly. There are thresholds of trust, commitment, safety and vulnerability that we all need to cross in a relationship before we are ready for this level of intimacy. The ordering is not insignificant. So, for example, if we're not yet in the right place for sharing a bank account... Neither are we yet in the right place for sharing a bed. Genesis tells us that the only proper place for sexual intimacy is between a man and a woman within marriage. Indeed, it's the means of sealing an earthly marriage to becoming one. It may be that a relationship never quite crosses the thresholds of trust and commitment that lead on into marriage. When it doesn't, there's a far higher likelihood that one or the other will at some point walk away. That's always painful. It's even more painful if the relationship has been sexually active. We can all appreciate how difficult it is to to separate two pieces of metal that have been soldered together. Uh, We'd like for there to be a clean break. 
But in the tearing apart, there's always going to be lasting damage. That brings us to the last key element of marriage mentioned here in verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Becoming one flesh alludes to marriage as it is to be lived outside of Eden. It speaks of one mortal life fully shared. It's the all that I am I give to you and all that I have I share with you of the marriage vows. Right alongside the in sickness and in health till death us do part. A reminder that the faithfulness and permanence of earthly marriage really is but a pointer to the heavenly marriage still to come. The more we attend to it, I hope, I hope, the more we will glimpse something of the beauty of marriage as first revealed to us there in Eden. Of course, right alongside this, we all know something of the brokenness of marriage in our lived experience outside of Eden. Some of us are experiencing marriage not as life-giving love, but as life-taking abuse, needing to get out. Others of us are experiencing the pain of a marriage lived without those longed-for children. Some of us long to be married, but it remains out of reach. Still, earthly marriage as it has been revealed to us, whether we are unmarried or married, should continue to lift all our eyes and hearts to the greater heavenly marriage to which it points. Some of us are same-sex attracted. So when it comes to marriage, there is no way in. Some of us live with gender dysphoria. So... When it comes to marriage, doubt there could ever be a way in. Yet, here we are, together. Each with the same goal in view. Whatever our distinct holy calling today. And if we're going to stay true to that goal, the unmarried are going to need the encouragement of the married. And yes, the married are going to need the encouragement of the unmarried. Now, it's the briefest of sketches. But in briefly sketching out an overview of what marriage is, I'm mindful of a perceived conflict that often comes up in conversation. It's one thing to look at the Bible, some say, But what I want to know is what Jesus says about marriage. Uh, The comment is often made as a rather bizarre attempt to, to pit Jesus against the Bible. An assumption is also made that Jesus has, has very 
really very little interest in marriage and so says precious little about it. What's then resorted to, to support one or other line of argument, is, is proof texting on the back of a few more or less explicit comments of Jesus, probably limited to the Gospels. But the problem with this approach is that it misses something huge. Jesus is born right into the heart of the very story the Bible sketches out. This story that begins in earthly marriage and ends in heavenly marriage. Moreover, it is this precise story that sets Jesus' life orientation. Without overstatement, everything he says and does is directed towards bringing about the fulfillment of it. Take John's Gospel, for example. It should be no surprise, after all that we've just said, uh, that the first of the signs through which Jesus is Glory is revealed there in chapter 2 was on the occasion of a wedding. The wine has run out, a source of potential embarrassment for the bridegroom. But Jesus steps into that bridegroom's shoes, turning water into choice wine. At the same time, Revealing to us, the reader, that he is an altogether greater bridegroom. The goodness of earthly marriage is affirmed, even as our eyes are lifted to the glory of the heavenly marriage still to come. We only need to turn a few more pages in John to come to chapter 4, where we Meet a woman who knows much about the brokenness of earthly marriage. She has been failed by not one, not two, but five husbands, each discarding her in turn. She's now with another man, perhaps waiting to see whether this new man will prove honorable, perhaps having finally given up on marriage altogether. Jesus says to her, why not try me instead? And as her eyes settle upon him, her heart leaps in recognition of what he is offering. That perfect heavenly marriage, which will heal the hurts of even the worst of our passing earthly marriages. Jesus really is the greatest of all possible bridegrooms. All that he is, he gives to us. All that he has, he shares with us. Friends, there is no more beautiful picture of marriage than the one painted for us across the vast canvas of the Bible story. No need to pull out our brushes and and touch it up. That will only serve to blemish and distort and so deprive us of the 
best news this world has ever heard. You see, that promised heavenly marriage between Christ and the church, pictured for us in the earthly marriage between a man and a woman, that alone connects us to the heart of reality. That alone is our salvation. Amen.